So glad you're here. Uh, it's ironic to me, I, I was coming back from Durango, and there's an electronic sign that they give like warnings, like, hey, there's a fire, don't call the police, because uh, it's like an intentional fire, um, hey, buckle your seatbelt. It was weird to me, because I saw that sign, and it said, oh, better late than never there, Bridget, all right? Um, and the, uh, the sign basically said, don't text and drive. And I got in this conversation with my kids about the fact that phones used to not exist in cars. I've talked about this before. And we had this conversation about the first person in our family that ever had a phone in their car was my Aunt Geraldine, which is a good Southern name, right? Aunt Geraldine had that bag phone, which you could call like four people for $30 a minute, right? And the bag phone, and they began to ask questions like, how did you know where to go if you didn't have the maps on your phone? And it's crazy to me, but my grandpa just memorized roads. Like, my grandpa could tell you major highways in Nebraska. He'd be like, yeah, if you're going through Nebraska, there's like this road and that road. And then they had maps in the car, or you had to do the humble thing of pulling over for directions. And they're like, no way. It's like, well, in truth, there's only like two roads in Nebraska. So it's not really <clears throat> that impressive. But, but like, it was a different time. And now, on the flashing road sign, our government, with chief concern for us above all things understands that what we need to know is not don't be a drunk driver, but don't text and drive. Like when I was growing up as a kid, we heard all the time about mothers against drunk drivers, students against drunk drivers. Drunk driving was the thing. Like you, you, people, and people we probably know have been harmed by a drunk driver or in a wreck with a drunk driver. It's a real thing. But above and beyond that, in 2021... More than someone putting alcohol in their system that would cause their system to be so inebriated that they are unable to properly function a vehicle is someone who's completely sober but looking at a message on their phone. Think about that for a minute. We are so distracted that small letters on a portable device is so powerful for our attention that it's a stronger narcotic than Jack Daniels. Maybe that didn't hit. You tried Jack Daniels, right? You know how powerful. It's a Baptist church. I know you have, all right? Jack Daniels is powerful as whiskey is, right? As, 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 as much as that keg stand in college could mess you up and flip your world upside down and cause you to run your car into another person, a text message that you, you simply, in your soul, you can't wait to read and respond to when you get home has become more dangerous in our cars. I say that because it says something about the human um, problem that we face of what we give our attention to. Of what we give our focus to, what we zoom in on, and what we fixate on. And this is exactly what Jesus is going uh, to zoom in on. And is, is, is about be careful what you hear, how you hear, how you listen, what you give your heart and your soul and your attention to. And so, um, as, as serious as I, I said this before, as messaging can be, and as, as is important in, in, in what kind of judgment comes on the teachers in the church and how teachers in the church are held to a higher standard, Jesus is going to warn, be careful how you hear. Be wise in how you listen because there's judgment in, in, in ignoring. And so I, we're, we're going to pick that, that, that whole theme that is here in chapter 4 up again and uh, dive back into it, all right? And so, if you got a text message, answer it real quick. I'm just kidding. Let's pray um, and ask God to help us, because we aren't going to pay attention without Him, right? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, spread Your kingdom through Your Word. 
God, we humbly acknowledge not one of us is going to pay attention in a righteous, life-giving, obedience-producing way apart from your Holy Spirit supernaturally making hard-hearted people like us good soil to, to receive the seed of your word and to produce fruit. And so as much as we think our education is great or how smart we think we are, clever we are, we come acknowledging how weak and dumb and stupid we are when it comes to truth and reality. And so God, would you come and educate, come and pastor, come and teach, come and shepherd? Come enable us to hear what we wouldn't hear otherwise. God, I, I ask um, for a miracle that not one person who hears your scriptures today and gets into your word would walk out of here unchanged. That's not my doing, that's your doing. And so, Father, help us as only you can. Bring about repentance. Bring about faith. Bring about obedience. Help us to see this, to treasure it, and walk out changed for your glory and our good. Father, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus, everyone said, amen. Open your Bible, Mark chapter 4. We've been walking through the gospel of Mark. Our habit here is to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. And in so doing, we get the full counsel of God and a, a good um, experience of all that God has put in his word for us to get. All right. And uh, we bring now to, to verse 21 of chapter 4, and I want to pick up there and let's just jump in. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in, I want you to underline that brought in, uh, to be put under a basket or under, both of those unders are key, they're repeated here, a bed and not on a stand. Pause, I just want to say this, Jesus uses logic and reason. There is no such thing as a Christianity that does not use logic and reason as old-fashioned as that's become in American education and culture. Verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the first parable. We're going to get into the other. So let's pause here for a second, and let's look at the lamp and the light parable. Uh, this language is... Um, throughout the Bible. Um, in the Old Testament, a lamp or a light in particular is a picture of the truth. Some of you have memorized um, in previous parts of your walk, Psalm 119, 105. Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Truth, and particularly truth according to the word, is a picture of light and truth that illuminates the path of God that you are to walk. Okay, and so this, Jesus is picking up on this, um, this, this history and this parable and this language and he's, he's dragging it into an illustration that he wants to use here. Now, in their culture, uh, little did you know that they didn't have electricity, all right? I know that should surprise some of you because your history classes were taught by coaches, um, but they didn't have electricity, so that, that just wasn't right. So what they had is there was like a terracotta kind of like a clay thing that they would put oil inside of it. You add a wick and they would light it. And then for a lampstand, they either had stuff that was on the wall, like a shelf, or they had it like a, like a stand, like an actual pole that they would put that light on inside of the, kind of like illuminating a room. And so Jesus drew off this all the time because you've probably, if you've been in church for a minute, you've heard other parables that involve lamps and church, but, you, but I've removed your lampstand. You're not true. You call yourself whatever you want, but you're not a church. Okay? And so this lampstand language is going to be employed even further throughout the scriptures. So they would have these terracotta things and these lights, 
And in order to maximize the spread of light that comes out of it, they elevated it or they platformed it so that the light would benefit the most amount of people and the most amount of space within the room. What Jesus is using is saying you created this thing of a lamp and a lampstand in order to maximize, not minimize. Because then he would come and he says, is it put under a basket? Now this basket, this word for basket here, is basically like a measuring basket. They used to measure out grain in it. So the picture would be like, I'm going to go to my cupboard and get my measuring cup out, which was not clear for them. It's a basket. I'm going to have to dump out the basket. So the purpose that the basket was created for, I'm not even using it for that. And I'm going to have to use it to stop the purpose for which the lamp was. The purpose of everything involved here makes absolutely no sense. Sometimes when we're arguing for the truth of Jesus, we have to point out the foolishness of the opposite thing. And so Jesus is kind of using foolish language to say, you would not dump your basket out to measure all your grain and put it on top of a light that you want to give out maximum glow. All right. The other thing, too, is he comes bed you wouldn't take the light smoke the bear and start a forest fire right now hebrews had mats they did like mats on the ground so this almost doesn't make sense but romans of which they were acquainted like an ikea elevated bed and you think ikea furniture won't catch on fire right and so they he was like, take an elevated bed roll the lamp underneath it right and i don't know what you know about fire okay that's putting everybody in the house in jeopardy we're going to burn the whole house down by putting something somewhere it doesn't belong. That's not what it was created for. That's not, what a, that's not where it belongs, and it's not where it was created for. You're trying to maximize the light, not minimize it. So you want to talk about your Christian life. Are you maximizing the word coming out of your life in the lives of people that are coming in your house, or are you trying to minimize the word and cover it? And I think all of us are tempted to cover it, haven't we? Right? Do we need to sing this little lot of mine before we even get started here? I'm not going to let Satan shh it out. Right? Some of you just looked at me super weird. All right? That was my bad. We're going to sing it later. All right? But like some of us in our Christian life are looking, I mean, part of what we do as leadership in the church is to build the platform of the candlestick of this church so that you can launch your personal ministry into the community off of it. We're trying to allow you to get the maximum amount of truth and light in your life, not so it would be hidden there, but it would be manifest to the maximum place possible. That's why we can shine our light brighter together than we can just off, us off by ourselves. Does that make sense? So Jesus is drawing off this imagery and saying, you were not created in Christ Jesus. The truth was not hidden in the inner parts of who you are. Because by the way, I can't see the truth inside your soul. I can just see your good works before men and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The truth of the gospel in your soul, I don't see otherwise beside your words and your actions. And so Jesus is coming and he's saying, what was hidden inside you in your deep recesses of your soul was not meant to be lodged there and kept to yourself. It's not meant to be put under anything. Right? It's not meant to be suppressed. It's not meant to be covered up. Look at the word under. I feel like that's been like my walk at times. Hasn't it been yours? Like you want to, you want to share Jesus, but you feel this, this darkness. You feel this pressure to just hide Jesus in your life. To put him under something. Or to make it where it's so ambiguous that people could explain your good works by something other than Jesus. Just because it was your upbringing or your culture or by golly because you're a good person and people like you. But have you ever felt that? And Jesus says that's not what you were, listen to the language, brought in for. 
You are brought into the kingdom to let your light shine, not to suppress it, not to put it under anything. It has been hidden in you that it might be made manifest. Think about the joy of Christmas. I know it's, it's, it's never too early. Somebody in here probably knows how many days it is till Christmas. And Christmas, right? We hide in order that at the right time and the right place for the joy of others, it might be given, right? So some of us in here, we don't want to talk about it, but parents, we hide our gifts. If you're smart, you don't wait till Black Friday. You know, you go down to Ross in July and you throw that baby in storage, all right? But you buy gifts in advance. Now, we have a thing in our family that if the kids discover their gifts beforehand, we will give them to other kids we like better, okay? If you discover it, you're definitely not getting it, all right? So don't even go looking around the house. It's discoverable, all right? But we hide the gifts and we keep them, and at just the right time, we manifest them for their enjoyment and their good. Isn't this the, th the same exact thing of what Jesus has done in you? He's hidden something in you that at the right time it might be manifest through you. Jesus gave truth to you so that he might give it through you. Right? He hid something in you temporarily so that it might be displayed permanently. There is something hidden in you temporarily that might be manifest permanently. Now this is, this, is, this is tough for us. Because some of us in here have talents that God has given us that we bury. A buried, to use the parable, which is not meaning the same talent, a buried talent is a betrayal of trust. A buried gift is a betrayal of trust. That if God gives something to you, but it never goes through you, that's a betrayal of the trust that He did in giving it to you in the first place. If God has graced you with truth and knowledge, for you not to share that is a betrayal of trust. How about this? Some of us have finances. Some of us have houses. Some of us have resources, and it's been given to you, but it doesn't ever go through you to others that have need. Some of us in here have spiritual gifts that are from God alone. That you would not be gifted to build the church up, to equip other people, to help other people, to serve other people. That, except for the fact that God gave you that thing. He gave you a little something-something to serve other people and to help get the gospel out to the world. And instead of plugging in and putting elbow grease to the kingdom of God and serving the kingdom, you bury that gift. Nobody is benefiting from the fact that God gave you that thing. The logic of what Jesus is arguing here is that was not his intention when he created you for that thing. So repent and turn and become the light that he wants you to be. You hear what I'm saying? Every single one of us that is sitting here has an innumerable amount of things that God has gifted to us. So let me ask you, church, what are you doing with it? Is truth and light being shared through it or is it terminating on yourself? He hid something in you that he might manifest it through you. That's what the passage is talking about. So where are you at with that? Are you a spiritual hoarder? Are you a spiritual hoarder or are you a conduit? Are you a spiritual hoarder or are you a conduit? He's inviting us to understand why we were brought in and it was that things in us might be made manifest. Then he says this thing, and I, I talked about this last week. It's as heavy and, and it can be as theologically messy as anything we can get into Scripture. But it's a warning. And I think that this warning needs to, it, it needs to, it needs to punch us in the face, just to be 100% honest. Verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, here's the curious thing about that. You can have these things on the side of your skull called ears. Right? And we know that there's people that are deaf who those things, they capture the noise, but it doesn't communicate to the brain. Like, they're deaf. And could you imagine trying to come and explain Mozart to a deaf person? Right? You don't listen to Mozart. 
Could you imagine trying to explain Garth Brooks in all of his majesty to a deaf person, right? There, are, there does not get better sermon illustrations than what I just gave you right now. So what did your pastor talk about on Sunday? The majesty of Garth Brooks. What else is there? Right? So there's a way in which you have the thing attached to your head, but you don't understand. You don't taste its sweetness. You don't cry when Garth sings the dance at Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s funeral. All right? So there's a thing. There's a way, and I, we all get this. There's a way in which you can hear but not listen, if I can play with the words that way. Right? There's a way in which sound waves can come into your skull, but you actually are not capable. I mean, isn't this what sin is described by in Jesus? They are blind. They are deaf. They are always hearing, but they don't, under, they don't understand. It's not that they didn't hear the parables of Jesus. It's that they did nothing to change their lives. And it's not because the truth is not potent, life-giving. It's not because of the seed that was sown. It's because of something that's dead or not working as it was intended to do. I mean, could you imagine, I know, being blind and trying to explain to a blind person the beauty of the ark that you would find in the Louvre? Welcome to preaching. Welcome to preaching. Uh, I heard one Bible school, I, I never took preaching classes, you probably could guess. Uh, I went to seminary, but I, I kind of had a, uh, I, I thought I was going to do a scholarly track, so I did mostly like Greek and Hebrew and history and stuff, so I never took any preaching classes, and I, I just didn't like them, okay? And so, but one of the preaching classes, uh, a professor would take the students that were being trained to preach, and he would bring them in, and they would do a field trip out to the um, cemetery, and he would say to the students, he'd have them prepare sermons, because that's what you do in preaching classes, you prepare sermons, deliver them, and then the professor tells you how terrible they are. And so they, he brought the students in, and he says, all right, we're at the gra- here's the graveyard. He's like, preach to your audience. He said, preach. They're all dead. And the students, were, they would give it a go, right? It's like, I've read Ezekiel, right? And so they come out, and so they, they, they and he says, and he did that so that the pastors would learn to be dependent on if anything is going to happen, if any resurrection is going to happen, if any change in hearts is going to happen, it's going to be by a miracle of God. And not because, go ahead and give them your cleverest sermon. Tell, them, tell your jokes. Give your good illustrations. Go ahead. Oh, it's, it's totally based on you. Right? And I think that we just don't see it that way. And the warning here of Jesus is, is to us who are dead in the grave saying, be careful how you, how you interact with truth. Be careful how you listen to things week after week, and then you, you're like a dead person in a grave who, who can't hear, they can't see. And so he, he, so he has this connection between this idea that we can be hearing Scripture all the time at house church and Awana and at Sunday services, and we not get it. And you know how we don't get it? Because we don't live it. There's no repentance, there's no faith, There's no fruit from it. And so he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. In the old King James, even as he'll come down later, he'll say, pay attention to how you hear. In verse 24, I love how the King James puts that. Take heed how you hear. Take heed. Like when you come to truth, take heed. I get that. Because I've been in a conversation with my wife, and she would say something like, did you hear what I just said? And my response is, that's a weird way to start a conversation. Right? And isn't this a tough thing in marriage where if you're watching, as a guy, if I'm watching something on TV and I'm, I'm drinking sweet tea, enjoying my life, and she wants to start a conversation about something really heavy, it's going to take me five minutes to like really turn, I got to turn up everything Everything that I'm focused on, I don't know about other guys, but I'm, I'm pretty one-track. I'm, I, where I'm at, I'm there, all right? I've got to completely, like, shift my, I need a five-minute break before we can switch conversations. Ladies, be gracious with your men, all right? 
And then it's like, okay, now let's talk. What were we talking? We're not, let's start, let's start over, right? Like I get the idea that sometimes like it's hard to give my full weight of my attention and focus to something so that I can actually understand the words that are coming out of her mouth. You think that's true in your relationship to your spouse or kids, your relationship to your parents or parents, your relationship to your kids? Or your co-workers, you think that's true there and it's not true with your relationship to your creator? Anybody ever read a passage in the Bible, finish the passage, and then instantly realize, I got to read that again. I got nothing, <laughs> right? I read words, but I, did, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't listening. Come on now. Let, oh, I forget, you read the Bible every morning and the glory of God, you come down like Moses. We got to put a veil on you because it's the brightness I mean, you touch, I mean, your Bible flips open at just the right place. Um, mine, I got to use the table of contents. So it's, it's not exactly hearing. It's as much of what you're listening to. So here's the thing that the Bible's going to say. Every human being born depraved, every sinner has a listening problem. Every one of us. You don't believe me? You're the exception to the rule. I'm sure. You were born with a listening problem. I'm going to say it again because you have a listen. You, you were born with a listening problem. A sin distraction. Where it's hard for you to soak up the truth. And it's not just, it's not just about what we hear. Because you realize that if you can hear lies. Let me put it to you like this. If you can hear lies and understand that they're lies. It helps you reinforce knowing the truth. Like, if you can hear a lie and understand that it's a lie and be able to deconstruct it in such a way that you understand that it's a lie, it'll help you understand the truth and reinforce your... It's, it's not just what you... It's how you hear. The problem is, is that we get fixed on lies and we don't know the truth at all. So that we can't tell the truth from the lie. What, it's, it's about what are we giving our consideration to? What are we fixated on? What are we given, if to use last week's sermon, what are we given the fertility of our heart to absorb? Do, do you hear what this is saying to you? It's been hidden in order to be made manifest, but you've got to be careful how you hear. Pay close attention to what you focus on. When God speaks to you, are you responding with a spiritual, huh? When God is speaking to you, are you responding with a spiritual, huh? Or are you responding in obedience? Because here's the thing that I've learned over time. Listening is one of the greatest signs of respect. Listening is one of the greatest signs of respect. You want to disrespect someone when they talk to you, Pay zero attention to what they just said and walk away. Right? If I had to choose between the two, between someone flipping me the middle finger and someone hearing something I'm saying and straight walk away and not ignoring it, go ahead and give me the middle finger. That don't bother me at all. You've got nine others that don't bother me either. Right? But isn't it, have you ever been in a, not with your spouse, but some other meaningful person? And isn't the not listening a sense of disrespect? And what is the highest respect we could pay? Listening. Hearing. Understanding. Truly hearing what the heart of the other person is trying to communicate. I love what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says about this condition and this problem of our listening. 2.14 of 1 Corinthians says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. John 10, 27 says about those that do hear and do honor and do respect him. My sheep hear my, vo my voice and I know them and they follow me. Hearing the voice, knowing it's from God and following is a distinctive mark of believers. 
Because listeners to God consider the source. And they trace what is being said all the way back to the one saying it, to God himself, and there is no higher respect we can pay him. I want for all the disciples that I have any influence on to have a well-tuned ear to the Holy Spirit. That when he speaks, they obey. It's my heart for you, it's my heart for me. It's that we would listen. And in so doing, maybe that's the a step into the glory of God. But let's let's maybe go a little deeper into this warning that I think is it's tough, all right? Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention. Again, King James, I, I like a little bit better. Take heed. Just hits me the right way. To what you hear or how you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I get I, I think this is just really heavy if you get what it's trying to say. First off, the measure that you use, the judgment that you use against the truth that you hear is going to be used against you righteously. Here's what it's saying. You come in to a sermon, you come into Bible study, you come into house church, and you hear what's being preached there, the truth is being laid out to you, do you realize that that same truth in two people is an occasion for one person to fall asleep and the other person is willing to die for it? There are brothers and sisters, so the truth that we're reading today are literally being in prison for the rest of their lives and they're being killed for the word that is being preached. And there are people today that are going to go to church and fall asleep while the word of God is being read. You know what that is? That's a measurement. Luke 8 is talking about the same exact passage that Jesus quotes this in Luke 8. He says, be careful about how you measure it. One person is measuring it as, it is nothing better than a sound machine to help me fall asleep. And the other person says, it is the words of life and giving my life for it is not still not enough for its worth. One person is saying, it's nothing, it's words on a page, it's old, it's, it's throwawayable. Right? It's, it's nothing. And that measurement is going to be measured against you so that even the amount of truth that you have is going to be taken from you. The other person is saying, there's no worth to this. This is an infinite worth thing. The Word of God is infinite in worth and I measure it as something that's beyond my capabilities to measure its worth. And more is added to that person. Here's where I get in this. Every human being has an access to the common grace of God and a knowledge of God that is built and hardwired inside of creation. Oftentimes, I think that's why Jesus uses agricultural language or agrarian language, because God the Creator has hardwired a witness to Himself in that, even if that witness is denied or explained away or they're blinded to it. Right? And even that common grace of what your conscience is telling you what right and wrong is, or what creation would say, or the witness of the of justice or court systems or kings or magistrates or governors or government or what the witness of the church is or whatever, whatever amount of, of understanding that you have, that if that doesn't lead you to accept it and to walk into it and to employ it and to exercise it, even that common grace will be taken away in such a way you will become more dumb. You will become more foolish. But if you can take what even little you understand about the gospel and what little you understand about the Bible, and you will put it into practice, you will employ it, you will exercise it. The Puritans would say the graces and gift of God are multiplied in their exercise. God will multiply more knowledge, more understanding, more wisdom, and more grace. That's what the passage is saying. Um, you, you may kind of come at that from a different passage. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. He's, he's, I think Paul is saying very similar things here. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This, this chapter is basically the United States right now. And so if you want to just 
title it that way. This is, this is where we're living. Chapter 1 says, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Does it say that they didn't have truth or that they suppress the truth that was shown to them? They suppress it. Right? What they have will be taken away. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. For they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We talked about the hardening work of God last week. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. These things are spiritually discerned. They are folly to the natural man. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and the birds and the animals and the creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, they measured the truth of God. It was worthless to them, so it was easy for them to trade truth for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God, here's the language, gave them up to dishonorable passions. You want that out? One of the greatest judgments God could ever do is the idols that you pursue in place of Him, He lets you pursue them. He can give you up to them. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with, men, with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's homosexuality, by the way. And I don't believe that AIDS is the answer of receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Otherwise, heterosexuals would never get AIDS. The due penalty for their error is a, the darkening and hardening work that has happened inside of them. A removal of even the truth that they have, which for me is seven million times worse than AIDS. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, why would they not see fit to acknowledge God who created the Grand Canyon? Because they measured it. And it didn't seem worth it. They didn't seem fit to acknowledge God. And God gave, the, there's that language again, gave them up to a debased mind. So whatever they, even on some level, understood before, they, they, they're able to understand it less as sin works its way in their life. See, here's the other thing. As the gospel and grace works its way in your life, you're able to understand more. Do you see the direction everyone's heading? One way or the other. Debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here's the thing. Just as grace works in you to do what ought to be done to shine your light, sin works in you to debase your mind to be enabled to do what ought not to be done. See, this is going two directions. And you're on one of two paths here. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. That's desiring other people's stuff. Malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, kids, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. 
So let's be careful what we clap to on social media and the kind of parades and the things that we celebrate. Because it's not just the people that are doing the act, it's also people that give approval to those that do such acts. So go back to our passage in Mark. Chapter 4. He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. Christian, you're at church today. If you will hear the word and receive it and grow in it, God will multiply your understanding. You can grow in knowledge of the word. God wants to add more and more truth to your life, more life to your life, more joy to your life. Not filled with unrighteousness, but filled with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you want more of that added to your life? Well, then whatever God right now has revealed to you in your walk, walk in that. And God will multiply that grace. I love that. I want you to, I want you to soak your teeth into that and get hungry this week to get into the Word. Okay, it will be added to you. But here's the warning, 25. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not. So there's a way in which you can have the truth, but have it not. Even what he has will be taken away. That's the debased mind. That's the removal of whatever has been. Let, let me say that this is one of the reasons why people that grow up in church, but never repent of their sin and give their life to Jesus become the absolute worst. Because they have just enough truth to keep them from coming to Jesus. And whatever they thought they understood, because they didn't really get right with God over it, it was removed from them. And they're twice as bad off. Right? I, I don't know how to warn you except for don't play games with the truth that God has given you. Neglect nothing that God has taught you. Let rust not gather on your soul. Employ everything that God has revealed to you. Lest this warning um, come true. All right, next thing, and then I think these next two are kind of connected, so I'm going to do them kind of as one. Verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if. It's God apparently using valley girl language. As if. Um, is as if. A man should scatter seed on the ground. This is picking up our, our agricultural picture in 1 through 20 of the same chapter. And he sleeps. That's a picture, all right? <laughs> so he does his work, he scatters the seed, and then he's, he's taking a nap and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. Um, I don't know about you, but as I read this, I was thinking about in elementary school. Did anybody else here uh, plant beans? You know what I'm talking about? Do y'all do that in y'all's public schools? I don't know what you, you guys learned. You'd plant a bean in science class and you'd like put it in the window seal and you have to walk. Homeschool kids in public school, they get to plant things. And so they, you plant the bean. And it was like every day you would go to the window seal and see if it's grown. And you'd be like, I think mine's broken, right? It's like, it takes a minute. And the, you remember the first one that like kind of sprouted and just the, everybody's getting hype. It's coming out. And then it begins... So that, that kind of like comes to me uh, as I was reading this, uh, scattering seed. I tried to teach my homeschool kids this, and uh, I put some kids in charge of the spreader. I talked about that last week. I went out in my yard this week, and I found a three-inch tall pile. Uh, you know, deduce from that what you will. All right. He knows not how. Something miraculous, and I said this before, if we were pagans, we'd say magic. If we were New Age pagans, we would say science or nature. The truth of the matter is, it's like we can use the word photosynthesis. We know photosynthesis is happening. Okay, first off, anybody here want to take a stab at publicly spelling photosynthesis? No? How about you don't really know what the process is. We know seed goes in the ground and something happens. All we do is give pretty fancy language to it. But there is a power that is not the farmer that when a seed goes in the ground, that power 
makes it become what the seed is. And you know how many farmers create, like, made that happen? Zero. They're in there napping, right? They know not how. Verse 28, and the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear. So this is the elementary class, the bean plant coming out. Then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, he puts in the sickle because harvest is come. I think this is a picture of your own spiritual life, of your own growth in Christ. But I think the main focus is not that, but it's actually the picture of the kingdom of God and the worldwide church. It has to do with all believers everywhere because of that harvest at the end, which is a picture Jesus would say, at the end time the angels come to harvest and the rapture and the judgment and the things at the end of days. All right, And so here's the, here's the picture. And I said this before, if you want a parable to talk about how the results of your life and ministry are not ultimately in your hands, look at the sleeping farmer that's got crops growing in the field. You throw the seed out there, and God does some sort of miracle to make it grow in people's lives. So, um, the first thing I would say about this is don't, don't judge the beginning by the end. Don't judge the beginning by the end. Uh, or maybe, maybe the parable of the mustard seed, which I think is kind of going to explain that a little more, will help us. Verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? I love this. Um, he's searching for ways to creatively explain to people what the kingdom of God is like. So for my artist in here, right? I got a creative in our family. Just colors and cries all the time. I get it, all right? Like, for our creatives, listen, figure out how to make, like, music that helps people understand the kingdom of God. Make paintings and art that helps people understand the kingdom of God. Music and, and any way, search for beautiful ways to express the kingdom of God. What, he says, what is, with what was the kingdom of God, what do we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? What kind of story? Um, this reminds me of uh, so my grand. I'm, I'm the first generation since my first, uh, my great-grandfather to not be in the oil field, not be a roughneck. My great-grandfather was a roughneck in Oklahoma. My grandfather, my dad, and then I didn't, all right? Praise God. All right. And so I, I, I didn't end up in the oil field like so many before. But when those guys would all get together, I remember sitting with my grandfather, who I, I thought was just this fantastic storyteller. You got one of these in your family? Like just, he can explain anything, but it's always a story. And they would get together, and if they were explaining somebody that didn't know how to work, there's a story for that. Oh, so-and-so, he looked at a tool like he had never seen it before, you know? Like a calf at a new gate. Steve was looking at work, right? And they would just tell stories. They would say, back in 72. And when they would gather, they would eat, eat fish, deep-fried fish, and just men would get together, and they would just exchange stories, right? Do you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's, it's almost like it's a commodity. Like, the best thing that they could think of is getting people together and just telling stories about things that they had experienced together or things that they had experienced that the others hadn't. Jesus is trying to draw them in by telling them parables. He says, what, what kind of story can I get to help you understand what this looks like? Right? Verse 31. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Now, this is not necessarily saying that there's no seed smaller than that. It's the smallest of the planted seasonal harvesting seeds that they did. Mustard seed, if the people that were listening, of the seeds on the earth that they sowed during harvest or during planting season for harvest time, the mustard seed was the smallest of theirs. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the, and here's the illustration that that's talking about, that, garden plants. So what it's saying is not all plants everywhere, of garden plants that you, so like when you're planting jalapenos and watermelon and barley, um, the mustard seed was the smallest of those seeds. Comparatively to other seeds that they planted, you would look at it and say, that's a big old seed, right? It's probably going to produce a huge plant. And then it's like a carrot, right? 
mustard seed, very small seed, and then it grows into a 10 to 12 foot tall tree that's four inches wide. So among the regularly garden plants that they were sowing, it had the smallest origin and the largest ending. So don't judge the significance of something by the smallness of its beginning because the effect of which that smallness is going to bring is larger than everything else that you could compare it to. So he comes in and he says, now this picture of a tree, let me finish it and then I'll, I'll explain from the Old Testament. Yet when it sows, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. It's like other things are provided for because of the largeness of this kingdom or this tree. With many such parables, he spoke to them as they were able, because truth, you have to be enabled to hear truth, able to hear he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is a privileged position you have, Christian. is to have God explain to you and divinely reveal to you. The word mystery uh, that we talked about last week, enigma, riddle, this parable, it's something that you wouldn't otherwise understand unless God divinely revealed it to your heart. Let me just say, it's, you're not going to get it without God. Okay? And he says, this is a picture. Now, in Daniel 4, 10-12, and Ezekiel 31, 3-14, a tree symbolizes an empire, and birds are those that enjoy its protection. In Ezekiel 17, 22-24, a tree symbolized restored Israel, or another way of saying that, God's people or congregation fulfilled, which is what's happening here in the New Testament. And the birds symbolize those that enjoyed its blessing. So here's the deal. The tree is a kingdom, and a kingdom is pictured as a tree. And he's saying, let's look at its beginning and let's look at its ending, and don't judge a book by its cover. Don't jump to your conclusions too early, because it may take some time and be slow working itself out, but it's inevitably going to become the greatest. Uh, I was working out with one of my kids the other day, he jumped in with me. I was doing abs, as you can notice. Uh, and jumped in and did some crunches with me, like a, a solid uh, maybe 10 crunches inside me. And uh, got up, came in the next day, told his mom that he had worked out with me, pulled his shirt, was like, Mom, I got a six-pack from yesterday. <laughs> we both looked at him and said, Oh, son, if only it just worked that way. Right? There's a process at play here, right? And we love cake too much. He says, don't judge its, in, its ending or significance based on the smallness of its beginning. Think of 120 people in the book of Acts praying together. The smallness. And now... In every country in the world, you have brothers and sisters in Christ. In Tonga, and the islands in the Pacific, there are brothers and sisters going to worship Jesus and sing to Him like you are today. Maybe with more rhythm. All right, There's going to be Irish people, people in Europe, people in Russia, people underground in China. Started with 100, what is there, 120 praying? Or let's go smaller. One man. From an obscure place in the Roman Empire. The God-man. Could he have had a more humble beginning? And who, at that time, or at any time, could have predicted that the one man, Jesus of Nazareth, that no one has had more art created in his honor, no one has been worshipped more or sang to more than the preacher from Nazareth, the God-man who came from us. No, no one has had more hospitals to help the sick built in his name. No one has had more orphanages created or ministries created than the man from Nazareth. Churches are planted at over 6,000 feet in Colorado 
for his glory? You want to talk humble beginnings and gloriously large results? And we're not done, right? I mean, we're going to Guatemala. We want to go to the ends of the earth. We want to find unreached people groups. Every nation has Christians, but not every people group does. And that's why we've got to take the gospel to hard places in the Muslim world and hard to reach area. The easy places have all been reached. There ain't nothing but hard places left. And we're going to do that so that a new branch from the kingdom of God might spread and bear fruit and that the, the birds would be blessed because that branch is in that people and in that place. Don't judge. It's ending by its beginning. I love Proverbs 25 too. I'm so glad I got to preach this passage just because I want to give you this verse. I, I don't think I understand the fullness of it, but I want to give it to you and you can meditate on it like I am. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. Last thing and then we're done. Jesus is the glory of God sealed in order to be searched out and revealed. He is the light of the world who took on himself your darkness on the cross that you might no longer walk in that darkness. He is the seed, the word of God planted in a tomb that has risen into a tree that has become the kingdom all over the world. Do you know him? Can you hear him? I'm going to pray for you. Even if my preaching came up short today with every head bowed and every eye closed, you heard scripture read today, which is the inerrant, infallible truth of God. How did it hit you? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. What are you going to do with the truth that Jesus came to save sinners like you? Can you hear it? Can you receive it? Can you respond to it? I would ask if there's anyone here that has never responded to the truth of the gospel. That Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave in his soon coming. In order to save sinners, I'd invite you now just to call upon the name of the Lord and just ask Him to save you. He's good for it. Whatever God's speaking to your heart, listen. Obey. If you're here as a believer and your heart looks like a large pile of seeds, stacked on top that are not penetrating and you've got truth after truth after truth you've ignored but you've not exercised or walked in I want to invite you brothers and sisters with all the love of my heart to repent maybe ask God to pile drive that stuff as deep in you as it can go maybe repent of the habit of listening to truth with no intention glorifying God by obeying it. You were brought in to the kingdom that your light may shine, not be put under anything. Dear Heavenly Father, I enter your courts with thanksgiving, your presence with praise, because I would have never been able to understand unless you conquered my sin and made me able by your Holy Spirit. And so all across this room, Holy Spirit, would you come and break open hearts, implant the seed of the word, bring about repentance. God, we spread your kingdom by branching into the lives of those within the sound of my voice. Holy Spirit, there's maybe something that you have specific, some specific 
word, some specific obedience, some specific calling that you have on someone here. You gave it to them years ago and it was ignored. Well, God, they're here now, so would you be so gracious as to give them a second chance and put it at their doorstep again? God, if there's even one that doesn't know you here, would you turn them from sin and save them? That their light might shine. God, I pray that in Jesus' name. Everyone said, man, would you stand and respond in worship to your